halfway through 1953's a Hollywood melodrama Titanic, Barbara Stanwyck's character Julia admits to her husband Richard, played by a tuxedoed and boutonnieredd Clifton Webb, that their preteen son is actually not biologically his son at all. She'd strayed from the marriage one night on a beach with a man she never saw again, she says, after she'd had enough of Richard's friends making fun of her gaucherie. The ship hasn't hit the iceberg yet, and most of the movie has up to now, as historian Stephen Beale has pointed out, made Titanic into the scene of an upper-middle-class domestic drama. This back-and-forth between a woman trying to escape the elite snobbery she's come to loathe, and a man who has put all his eggs in exactly that basket. The wealth, the luxury, the trappings of the transatlantic leisure class, all that the ship that they're on, Titanic, represents. Julia has essentially kidnapped the two children to return them to America, and Richard has pushed his way aboard by buying a ticket from an immigrant father who he entices with enough cash to allow the man's family to buy land in California. He suggests that the man quote-unquote tribal huddle with his wife to make that decision. And all through the movie, Richard's words make it clear that this story is all about class, indeed. He asks Julia, do you think Annette, and that's their 18-year-old daughter, will be grateful to you for hauling her into the wilderness? And that's what he calls the Midwest, by the way. He also says about Julia, I made the mistake of thinking I could civilize a girl who bought her hats out of a Sears Roebuck catalog. I was wrong, and don't think I haven't had my share of regrets. Clifton Webb himself was from the middle of the country, his father a ticket clerk from an Indiana farming family, his mother the daughter of a railroad conductor. Webb's own mother had made an aspirational class leap herself from someone who no doubt saved coins and dollars to order from catalogs when she moved her son, who she affectionately called her little Webb, to New York City at age 11 so he could pursue the theater. In this film, the tragedy of Titanic becomes on the surface just this means through which a family resolves their internal tensions, their very intimate drama, negotiates a return to American values after a sojourn into European opulence, which ends, of course, in its absolute destruction. This movie is plain, insanely medium, but that, in the context of its time, its place, and its position as a fictionalization of a sinking just 40 years after it happened, it's all about class in 1912 and in 1953. And it's also all about gender. And for better or worse, I'm so glad I visited with it for an hour and a half. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is Titanic on film, 1953's Titanic.
So the elephant in the room? Any analysis of Titanic is definitively a class story, and a race story, and a gender story, and a political one. There's no way around it. Anyone who tries to take these elements out in the name of just telling stories or heralding bravery of certain passengers without giving context, come on, (laughs) no way. The White Star Line called Titanic in 1911 as she was being built a great Anglo-Saxon triumph and that the sister ships Olympic and Titanic represented, quote, the preeminence of the Anglo-Saxon race on the ocean. The very existence of this massive thing is a testament to the racial and class tensions at the time. We can never forget that when talking about Titanic, we have to talk about these things. And I'm guilty of it sometimes even, like last week when a huge part of my latest episode was about making fancy cocktails from the Waldorf Astoria. A couple of things to keep in mind. There's the story of Officer Lowe, remember him, he was the only one to go back into the debris field, the body field, to look for survivors the night of the sinking. In the U.S. Senate inquiry just days later, he notoriously says he discharged his weapon on board during the lifeboat lowering process because a group of Italian emigrants were being rowdy, insinuating that their race had everything to do with their behavior. He had to issue a withdrawal of the statement, though, because the Italian ambassador caught wind of it. Winston Churchill, yes, Winston Churchill, wrote that the disaster showed him that, quote, in spite of all the inequalities and artificialities of our modern life, at the bottom, tested to its foundations, our civilization is humane, Christian, and absolutely democratic. Quote ends. 62% of first-class passengers survived. In third class, it was 25%. It's laughable, obviously, over 100 years later now, that such a simple and innocent-sounding narrative would come to rule the day. Other more realistic voices at the time pointed out the greed and the inhumanity of what had happened, but those got drowned out in the mainstream press, of course. We'll talk about it more soon, But the suffragist debate even employed titanic imagery at the time, though Churchill thought the, quote, unmarried lady teachers should be grateful for the male heroism. And I certainly don't mean to pick on Churchill, but I do think it's important in the context of the time to understand what (laughs) what words were given priority and what narratives were given priority. 40 years later, just 40 years, and this is crazy to think, 40 years, men and women are, of course, still at metaphorical war in America in 1953. During the actual war years, women had gone to work. They'd left home. Some were enjoying being gasp, gasp, single (laughs) for longer. Toothpaste was out of the tube, you know, and just as they usually tend to, movies reflected the culture and the culture wars. On the surface, this 1953 adaptation of Titanic looks nothing looks like nothing more than a 50s melodrama that happens to be set on Titanic. In fact, my dad, who is truly a student of Hollywood history, even says that that is precisely what it is. 
It is exactly because this movie is so plain, really, this medium kind of movie with a solid, if not exhilarating, work within it, that it shows some of the ways that politics and gender and class just existed plainly within movies of this time. It's a perfect case study. And isn't it always the curse of the historian that we create more narrative later, that we find something ripe for analysis and we mold it and explain it and bend it in these new ways to tell stories, make points. That's what I'm doing here. That is what we're all doing. The 1950s woman had been liberated somewhat by technology, by the war, by going to work. And here the sinking seems to want to send her right back to the gender norms of Edwardian society. This is notably exactly the opposite of what Jim Cameron does with Rose in the 97 movie. And trust me, I cannot wait to talk about the feminism. Yes, I said feminism of that film. A little backstory. This film has decent pedigree. One of the screenwriters of this film, Charles Brackett, would win an Academy Award for Best Screenplay four times in his life, including for Sunset Boulevard, and the one that he shared on this film, this one for Best Screenplay and Story, which was its own category then, and I didn't know that. He shared it because it had three screenwriters, him, Richard Albreen, and Walter Reich. At the 1954 ceremony, Roman Holiday won for Story, From Here to Eternity won for Screenplay, and Titanic won for this both category. Again, so interesting. It was also nominated for Art Direction, Black and White category. Its director was Romanian-born Jean Negulescu, who was known for melodramas and light romantic comedies, perhaps his most well-known being How to Marry a Millionaire, which starred Marilyn Monroe and Lauren Bacall and Betty Grable. But he'd also worked with Fred Astaire, Lana Turner, Sophia Loren, a who's who. The story goes like this. Reich, one of the screenwriters, says Daryl F. Zanuck, famed producer, head of 20th Century Fox, called him and Brackett, one of the other writers in, and said, I have Clipton Webb under contract, and we have CinemaScope, and I want to do something big. Don't make Clifton a clown. I want him to start a new career as a character actor. Use all the young people we have on the lot, like Audrey Dalton and Robert Wagner. Reich says he came up with the Titanic idea after that and pitched Clifton Webb as one of the 25 multimillionaires who died on it. So Webb is essentially playing... Astor or Guggenheim. Brackett, who co-wrote and produced the film, told the press that some of the stories had to be discarded because, quote, they were too fantastic for movie audiences to believe. At one stage, the film was going to be called Nearer My God to Thee. Clifton Webb had been a Broadway dancer and hadn't made much headway in Hollywood until he was in his 50s, and Otto Preminger cast him as an evil radio columnist Waldo Lydecker in the film noir Laura. He'd then gone on to star as Mr. Belvedere, the snide know-it-all babysitter in Sitting Pretty and its sequels. You might also know him from the original Cheaper by the Dozen. By the time he makes Titanic, he's 63 years old, but guys, he's a huge movie star. 
And I don't have time to go into all of it right now, but there's a mansion in Beverly Hills, the one where he lived with his mother until she died when he was 71. And there are tenants of it that claim they've seen his ghost dancing with his signature sophisticated posture in the master bedroom of the house. Supposedly, a medium channeled him there during a seance, and he admitted he was scared to cross over in case he'd be forgotten. I desperately wanted to call this episode The Ghost of Clifton Webb, but I stopped myself, so that's probably a good thing. Julia's role went to Barbara Stanwyck, who was one of the biggest movie stars there was. And if you've never seen Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, I highly, highly recommend you start there. She was in her 40s at this point, though, shifting into this mother role that Hollywood often dictated for women who were aging. But that didn't stop her from famously having an affair with her much younger co-star on this movie, Robert Wagner, 22 at the time of filming. Take a listen to part of the trailer of the movie before we go any further. Four decades have passed since the Titanic screamed across the headlines of the world. Yet no human drama has eclipsed its staggering impact and overwhelming power. Now, for the first time, the screen brings you the strange events, the monumental story of those four never-to-be-forgotten days. So one point in this trailer is, is not true, that it had never been brought to the screen. There was a silent film adaptation as early as 1912, the year of the sinking, that starred Dorothy Gibson, who survived the sinking, called Saved from the Titanic. Unfortunately, no prints of it exist anymore. There had also been German-made propaganda films. That could be an entire episode of this podcast within itself, There had been a 1929 movie called Atlantic that was essentially about the Titanic. So this trailer goes on to tell us that the tale is about sinner and saint. And then there are glances and sighs. And it also spotlights humor, notably with lines from actress Thelma Ritter, who plays this very obvious Margaret Brown stand-in named Maud Young, who, when mistaken for someone of a lesser class, proclaims, quote, I have so many maids, some of the maids are now taking care of the maids. The trailer ends with these lines. It's Titanic in emotion. It's Titanic in climax. It's Titanic in cast. We are supposed to be moved by this spectacle. Despite the film opening with a placard that claims its facts were extracted from the U.S. Senate hearings, guys, this film has so many inaccuracies in terms of the sinking and the ship that I would say the writers and producers must have just been aware of it and been fine with moving forward that way anyway. Some of it can be forgiven in terms of the lack of sources at the time, the lack of scholarship, Walter Lord's book, A Night to Remember, wouldn't debut for a few more years. Just one brazen example, though, the whole film is set up by this scene at Cherbourg, France, where Richard, the husband, has to find a way on board by buying this ticket off of a third-class immigrant because the ship is sold out. That's why he has had to do it. And it wasn't sold out. 
this guy could have waltzed up to the ticket counter in Cherbourg and likely bought a ticket. So the film opens with pieces of iceberg falling off, an iceberg emerging from the ocean creaking, which I have to say for as much as I'll pick on this film or it might seem like I am, this is a startling image that conveys a sense of impending doom. After that, we are right on the ship in some huge mail room, and the stewards are weighted down by the flowers being delivered to sweets. The asters are mentioned right away, and it's just flowers and flowers. And strangely, this part is accurate. Titanic interiors were being finished up to the last moment of departure, painting on molding, tightening screws on coat hooks, that kind of thing. And according to some sources I've run across, they brought on this dizzying array of flowers to mask the smells of paint and such there at the very end of of getting the ship ready. Captain Smith here is thin. He's younger. He's good looking. He's meeting with the White Star Line Vice President Harold Sanderson because, drumroll please, Bruce Ismay is conspicuously absent from this film. If anyone has any thoughts as to why, message me. I couldn't figure it out. But we do see Sanderson as a one-minute stand-in for this whole theory, line of thinking, as he hints at the captain that the company would love a speed record. The ship sailing off actually looks pretty good for the 1950s. I can honestly see why it was nominated for art direction at this point in time in terms of their use of the models and the technology available. And the scenes with the tinder coming in at Cherbourg actually look good. They evoke this sense of dread and misty shadows, all the things about 1950s film that are intriguing and good. But then when they show the tender next to the ship, the scale is <laughs> laughably off and Titanic actually looks small, which cinematically is not what you'd want. J.J. Astor is on the tender with his teenage wife, Madeline, and he's looking for a chair to make her comfy. And this is when we meet Maud Young, the Molly Brown double, and she's boisterous and candid and seen from this point on in the film, mostly just in the smoking room playing cards with the men, which in no way, shape, or form would have ever been allowed on Titanic. Take her to see, Mr. Murdoch. We get that iconic line here, but it's at night, and most of the ship shots are at night, actually. And I'm sure that it was easier to film, it was easier to make the ship look realistic in the darkness. And we survey the class divisions only briefly in any physical sense. Richard makes his move from the loud, bustling third-class common room up through a gate to first class to assume his rightful place in this palace, and some steward tries only half-heartedly to stop him. With his fine suit and light-hearted air about him, I suppose it's quite obvious that Richard Sturgis didn't belong below. The first-class dining saloon is expansive here, beautiful, obviously done in that 1950s cinemascope aesthetic. And I'll tell you, it actually in many ways looks better than in the 1996 miniseries I talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's bright, it's open. It doesn't look accurate per se, but we do get a sense of the opulence of it. We see the Strausses, Ida and Isidore, and Richard stops by to say hi, makes a joke about Mr. Strauss having plans for the evening because he's pumping Mrs. Strauss full of champagne. Guys, I couldn't make this stuff up. 
and he surprises his wife Julia, who of course thought she'd made it out of Europe with the kids. She's sitting there wearing to note a completely anachronistic suit, and Richard just saddles up casually, like, okay, just kidding, here I am to make your life miserable. He tells the waiter he'll have a sandwich at the bar. The bar. The bar. There was no bar on Titanic. You know, this is one of my pet peeves. There was definitely not one, I swear to you. So now I'm going to play you a little clip from this meeting at dinner. Perhaps you'll explain now why you're kidnapping my children. I'm not kidnapping them, Richard. I'm rescuing them. From what? From you. That was my guess. This family reunion story is a deliberate trick to get them away. It is, and what's more, they're never going back. They're going to stop being rootless, purposeless, superficial hotel children. What's wrong with hotels? Are they very good ones? Oh, Richard, I... Richard, please try to see this sanely. We're Americans. We belong in America. And yet for years we've been galloping all over Europe to be at the proper places at the proper time. That line, we're Americans, we belong in America. This is Julia's cry. Richard argues that no... He's proud of his daughter, Annette, for this glamour she seems to have acquired for her fitting in with the likes of the Astors and the Strausses. But Julia then calls her own daughter an arrogant little prig. However she'd bought into this life, this life of leisure, of abundance, she's done with it now, Julia is. And the only salve she can imagine is returning home to a simple life in Michigan. She wants to away to real life back in America, far away from the sitting rooms and the dining rooms of this European set. And meanwhile, the Marconi operators are shown making fun of the first class telegrams by reading some aloud the meeting of private train cars, the elaborate parties being planned, who's sending greetings to who, that sort of thing. And they mention a man named Archibald Butts, who did not exist because his name was Archibald Butt. He was a presidential advisor to Taft on board. He is one of my favorite passengers to study. So this specifically was heresy to me. More on that another time. Robert Wagner, playing another first-class passenger named Giff Rogers, had set his eyes on Annette, but for some reason he chooses to go first to her mother, who he quickly lets know that the P on his college knit sweater is for Purdue University, not Princeton. Here again, this class question, he's picking up on Julia's perhaps not wanting her daughter to fall in with the snooty Ivy League crowd. He's smart but he's approachable. He's saying that he's respectable, but relaxed, somehow more of a pure option for Annette. American as apple pie, perhaps. Another Hollywood history side note, Wagner and Stanwyck actually carried on quite the affair coming out of the filming of this. He wrote about it in an autobiography. Apparently, she was the one to break it off, claiming that since she was 20 years his senior... It just wouldn't work. But Annette won't be easily swayed. My address is Paris, France, she proclaims. She is appalled also when she learns that her mother turned down a potential suitor for her back in Europe. She begs to go back there with Richard. Norman, the son, meanwhile, has demanded he be allowed to wear long trousers to dinner, symbolically taking some step towards manhood there. 
Does it seem like I haven't mentioned much about the ship at this point? Yeah, that's because there's not a ton. Like I said, this is a melodrama at its core. This is a classic 1950s formula at its beating center, this familial crisis. You get the occasional check-in with the crew, these ominous little scenes that the binoculars are missing, that a nice warning comes in. But there's no real interpretation of the voyage. There's no sense of the director wanting to say anything about Titanic. And some of it's just so wrong, like the captain announcing to Murdoch and Lightoller that he'll catch the icebergs in the morning because they should hit them around 8 a.m. This makes no sense. At times, this ship doesn't even seem like Titanic. But like I said earlier, this is precisely why this film is so ripe for a conversation about class and gender on Titanic and class and gender in the 1950s. There's this undercurrent of the two eras melding, like I've spoken about before, almost this nostalgia for some simpler era. It's crazy to think about, right, that anyone would long for pre-World War I anything, but for many men in the 1950s, the liberation of women was a tenderized fear, an Achilles heel. As the film ramps up, there's this scene where Julia reveals Norman's paternity, I mentioned about in the intro. And if the ship never started to sink, you kind of get the sense that this family might be severed forever by this realization. What you should know, too, in terms of myth-making and the Titanic, is that it began right away in 1912, and it's never really stopped. And it's always been so tied in with gender. When the Titanic sank, the women's suffrage movement was picking up steam and making a lot of men and traditionalists very nervous. Like I've mentioned before, even Margaret Brown was involved in the suffrage movement at this point already. Anti-feminists would then employ the imagery of the Titanic as as a woman, take advantage of the fact that ships were known to be women. You know, we always say her, she, I even do it. They took advantage of this and made it seem like The ship had been some sort of mechanical bride gone rogue, that the female energy of the ocean, too, was this dangerous and seductive thing that left destruction in its wake. I should say, in the middle of all of this in the film, there's also a storyline with a fallen priest named George Healy, who traipses around half drunk, starting and never sending Marconi grams, and is really just trying to get to this non-existent bar... (laughs) the bar again. This part of the film is so disjointed, so disconnected from the rest of the plot. And all I can think is that perhaps the filmmakers just wanted some sort of religious story arc. I mean, they almost named the movie Near My God to Thee, which is the hymn the Titanic band supposedly played on deck until the very end. And we'll get to more about that in a minute. So Annette, the daughter, is ultimately seduced by the cutesy Americanisms of Giff, including a song and dance number he performs on the boat deck. Some incredibly, incredibly, I'm telling you, offensive tune called the Navajo Rag that includes such abhorrent lines as there's a dance they do on the reservation and shake your moccasins. Unfortunately, I found out that this music, this number, is real. At one point, Giff says it's, quote, the hottest jig the girls do. In fact, when the ship hits the berg, Smith is watching some teenagers 
play the piano, and sing inexplicably what seems to be the Cornell University song. All right. Actually, I'm going to go back and I'm going to play you that gif and Annette scene. You need to hear a couple of seconds of it to believe me, I think. You left me standing right in the middle of the floor. That's just it. I didn't know what to do when the orchestra started playing that funny dance. What do they call it? The Navajo Ride? That's the one. I've never heard it before. Never heard it before. Where have you been? Locked up in some art gallery? Why, that's the hottest jig the kids do. Yes, I noticed those girls with your friends. They seem to, well, shake automatically. Especially the pretty one with the dog. And yes, that is Annette saying that the American girls tend to shake automatically. So... We do eventually get to the point where the ship hits the iceberg. And there's this one scene between Richard and George Healy, the priest. And Richard just says, did we hit it? And Healy says, no, it hit us. And it is this really great cinematic, dramatic moment that ushers in the back half of this picture, as they called them back then, of course, And we are in the middle of the sinking. So cue the redemption narrative. Now, to be fair, Captain Smith is super proactive and alert here once he realizes that there's danger. It's an interpretation of him I hadn't seen yet on film. But again, it doesn't seem as though the director, Negulesco, has any designs on assigning blame for the disaster. The disaster is a disaster. The human drama of it, that's the focus here. And it cuts sharply for these characters that we've already peeked in on. Giff tells Annette that he wouldn't have missed this boat for anything, even if he may die on it. Echoing a bit of the 97 film, I must say, I could hear Jack Dawson in the back of my head saying winning that ticket was the best thing that ever happened to me. But the comparisons on that pretty much in there. Richard's redemption begins swiftly as he rushes to find the mother and children of the family he bought the ticket from, make sure that they get on a boat, and then, poof, just like that, third class is gone from the ship again. Just gone. And the way these deck scenes are shot, it's as if every woman and child in every class, for the most part, is assigned a lifeboat and gets off of the ship. The decks are just a sea of men. Julia is regretful right away, and she and Richard embrace in this sort of instantaneous forgiveness. She seems to somehow immediately forget all the reasons she literally snuck away from this man with her children in the night to get them across the ocean. The two of them reminisce about their meeting, that Julia had been wearing a plain muslin dress the day they met 20 years prior, They have returned, at least symbolically, to the simplicity of her previous poverty of some sort of innocence of that. So if we're keeping track on the messaging, I'd say that we've got, number one, that this woman has tried to rebel, to break free, but the sinking of the ship has put her back in her place. She needs Richard to put her and her kids in a lifeboat, that she and the other women on board need the heroism of these men that it puts things back in order, so to speak. And in the end, she is reduced to tears and seeming madness in the lifeboat as she watches the ship go down. And any work of her feminism, it seems, at least to the modern viewer, 
evaporates. And point two, we also see all the trappings of this effete European transatlantic set sinking, literally and figuratively. This notion of some sort of American purity of these American characters. So men and America. Except for Molly, I will say, I'm sorry, Maud, Maud, who jumps on board a boat and says, quote, all right, give me one of them paddles. I like to think I've got a little bit of skill, if, if amateur skill, but a little bit of skill when it comes to critiquing a film. And I like to think that I'm fair. And I will say that the scenes towards the end here, the loading of the boats, the frantic searching as the priest heads down to help people in the boiler room, which is more redemption, there you go, for him, as Norman, who gives up his seat on a boat for a desperate woman and thus completes his transition into some sort of manhood, searches for Richard. These scenes have no soundtrack, no orchestration, and are instead just backgrounded with the screeching of the release of steam, of the chaos of running bodies. And in this film, and just in general, this is extremely effective and moving. But just after these scenes, as the men, and again, I cannot stress enough, it is portrayed as only men left on board. They gather on decks and smoke and wait out their fate. There's suddenly time to ponder, time to pause, and sing nearer my God to thee as a group. It's as if the ship stops sinking long enough for Richard to accept Norman as his son again, for the men to process their own heroism. Here, I'll play you just a little tiny snippet of that. And then at the end, the stern goes down fast, and you see no people, no people on the stern. The men are not there anymore. It's as if the hymn has cleansed the terror, wiped away any suffering. The film concludes very abruptly with the summary of a survivor count and a shockingly good shot of lifeboats floating amid all the ice the next morning. It's actually quite a beautiful shot. This film tries to affirm a classlessness of the middle class, upper middle class, in many ways. Once Richard gets the immigrant family on the boat, the third class experience seems to be gone from the vessel, like I mentioned. This idea that that family will be fine, they'll be saved, and they will go on to their American dream in California, with all the money he left behind with the father back in Cherbourg, France. Annette will marry the gee whiz tennis player, Purdue Man Giff. He survives, by the way, because he leaps to help with a jammed rope on a lifeboat as it goes down and ends up falling injured into one. In 1974, a bizarre one-act play out of the Yale School of Drama, and it later went off-Broadway, actually, parodied the film. And in it, the father, Richard, they didn't change his name, but they changed all the others, weirdly, learns from his wife, Victoria, that their son, Teddy, is not actually his son, but the product of an affair. And Richard then reveals that their daughter, Annabella, is actually the product of his affair with another woman, and that they'd use mirrors to trick 
the wife into thinking she'd given birth, and that he always ridiculed her Indiana pig farm upbringing. Victoria, the wife, then reveals there's actually no Annabella the daughter at all, and that this other woman and she have been using mirrors and bread? I don't know. I haven't seen this. <laughs> but it says that, bread, to deceive him. Ultimately, Teddy, the son, shoots his parents. I think that the strangeness of this just illustrates how much happened in that 20 years. Think about it. 1953 to the early 1970s. Just 20 years, but so much changed. So much changed about how we consume our culture, what was allowed on TV and movies, on stage and screen alike. 20 years, but within that 20 years, a long civil rights movement, one with roots way back before the 50s and 60s, but with major progress during this era in this 20 years. And second wave feminism? So much. Richard Sturgis would faint to see such a world, probably already by 1974. J.J. Astor likely would have fainted to see such a world as well. Thank you for listening to this Titanic on film series. When I first conceptualized doing it, I sort of imagined they would just be little 15 and 20 minute episodes where I would summarize a film or a documentary or a show. I never imagined it would become its own creature like this, where I really been up late at night (laughs) researching the social and the cultural history and some film history in new ways. I'm enjoying it. I am going to be featuring all sorts of films, including documentaries, including films that are have so much merit and so much to offer in terms of social history. There's so much more to come. I know the first couple of movies that I featured, it's been there's been a bit of like a humorous side because these films are older and the nitpicking has been easy. But that has also been an entree into discussing some really important things. So I think both types of episodes are important. And I really would love your feedback on how it's going, but also on one very specific thing. You guys, when should I do the 97 movie? Should it be soon? Is that something that you're wanting soon? And how many parts should it be? How many parts will you tolerate? Two, four, (laughs) 17. I'm I'm kidding on the 17. But please let me know, really, it looms large on this podcast. It looms large in my life in a good way. Uh, James Cameron's influence looms large on this podcast, which is why the film in two weeks is actually going to be his 2003 documentary, The Ghosts of the Abyss, which I am incredibly excited to talk about. It moves me to tears when I watch it sometimes. So feedback, unsinkablepod at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, unsinkablepod, or on Twitter, unsinkablepod there as well. Guys, the the dog next door has decided that (laughs) he wants to interrupt this last little bit of my podcast. I am an at-home studio podcaster, so please excuse that. Thank you for listening. By doing so, you are supporting this homemade podcast. This little dream of mine of creating this corner of the podcast world, this corner of the history world, 
this corner of the Titanic world. And for that, I am incredibly grateful. Thank you so much. Please keep spreading the word. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, email me, like I said. And lastly, there's something that I would like to start doing at the end of some of the episodes, which is just recommending to you some podcasts that I've been listening to. I think it's really important for podcasters to support one another. And I think it's also fun just to tell you like, hey, here are some things I'm listening to that are making me want to podcast better, that are making me want to research in new and exciting ways or are just comforting and entertaining, and I want to pass along the word. And none of these people know that I'm going to mention these today. This is just pure, hey, you should give this a listen. So one of them is The Reference Desk, and it is done by two longtime friends who are librarians, and I believe one of them is or has been a teacher, and they it's like hanging out with old friends. They pick a topic each time, they do research, and so they are using their skills as librarians, but when they when they dissect and they break down a topic, and they've actually done an episode on Titanic, I think it was a, a two-parter actually, it's, it's great. It's like hanging out with old friends. The information is there, the accuracy is there, but also just their specific kind of comforting discussion style that they have is fantastic. It's a great podcast. Highly recommend. They're doing a like a spooky season themed set of episodes right now. Next one is the History Cash podcast, which is hands down the best history podcast I have come across in years. It is well produced. It is well researched. I believe it is every three weeks. There's a deep dive episode into a topic. I just listened to the episode on the Edmund Fitzgerald, and I was on a walk and was almost moved to tears. So beautifully done. Highly recommend that one as well. And then lastly, a shout out to Gareth Russell, who I have mentioned is a historian that has written a great book about the Titanic called The Ship of Dreams. And he has a podcast, which is heading into its second season, and that is called Single Malt History with Gareth Russell. All right. Thank you again for listening. If you listen on Apple or Spotify, I believe both now have functions to subscribe to the podcast. That would be amazing. And if you listen on Apple and you're enjoying, please consider rating and reviewing. I will see you in one week for a spooky season official episode, episode four. It is a peek into the role that premonitions and spiritualism have played in the mythmaking of Titanic and its history. Looking forward to that one. All right. Cheers. Have a great weekend. See you then.